voila. Nice. You can activate it from any cell phone. Just dial in the number, and boom. <laughs> you can leave the money on the desk. Welcome to the Long Story Short Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Courtright. Today we continue our quest to learn about the art of storytelling. Our goal here is to learn about storytelling from those who write and perform stories. Today's guest will help us learn from both the writing and the performing side. She's a tremendously talented multi-hyphenate of writer, actor, producer, director. She is writer, director, actor in highly successful short films, which have been recipient of numerous awards and accolades, as well as creator, writer, director, actress of a TV series. And showing her affinity with the theme and goal of this podcast, she has the following statement on the homepage of her website, quote, I am a storyteller. Whether acting, writing, producing, or directing, I love telling stories that reveal the heart and soul of people undergoing a transformation, people at a crossroads in their lives, end quote. Highly successful director Mary Lou Belli speaks of her as, quote, a great storyteller with lots of heart, end quote. And in addition to films and TV, she, like me, loves cats and music. Please welcome to the program, Kathy Carey. How you doing, Kathy? I'm great. Wow. Um, I, I didn't know you were going to go on and on there. <laughs> so, I I, if I, you I, would see me now, I think I'm blushing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now, just like with my first guest, our mutual friend, Stephen Mitchell, there needs to be clarification about the proper spelling of your first name. That's Kathy with an I. It's K-A-T-H-I. No E on the end. Just, just an I. Um, <laughs> I. It's spelled all kind of weird ways, but it's just K-A-T-H-I. I know it's weird, but there you go. 
I want to thank you for coming on. As I mentioned to Stephen, it, it really helps me to have a longtime friend and associate join me because I'm still trying to find my footing in the world of interviewing. So it, I'd rather not make a fool of myself. I mean, I'd actually, I'd rather make a fool of myself with you than someone I don't know. I listened to your interview with Stephen, and it sounded good to me. So I don't think you're making a fool of yourself. But uh, here we go. <laughs> now, now, with you, now we're going to be doing double duty together today as I want to pick your brain about your approach to stories, but both as writer and as actor. So we got work to do, and let's get going. First thing I want to do is mention the fact to our audience that you and I have known each other for quite some time, a couple of decades. Um, I moved here from the Bay Area and um, read an ad. What was the ad placed in that you guys used to do at Cineparis? Um, gosh, you're asking me to remember now. Back yeah, quite some years. I think it says we'll have you on the speaking part in television in four to six weeks. Yes. Ready? Yeah. Yes. And I read that and I thought, well, that sounds interesting because I was interested in at that time, perhaps pursuing some acting as well as other things. So I made a call and it just so happens that you answered that call and invited me to a um, get together at which Stephen was going to be speaking and you were overseeing it to a degree. And um, that's how we first met. And I hooked up with Senate Paris and it kind of went from there. So that was uh, it was kind of a great way to get going. Well, it was. Um, I I actually started at Cine Paris as an actress. And I guess Steven saw something in me because he encouraged me um, over a little protestation at first to uh, start producing and then writing and directing. I was a little uh, nervous about all of the, those things because I really just wanted to act. And yet, um, once I started you might call it spreading my wings. Um, I found that I really loved the um, the writing and directing in particular. Um, I thought it was very, very creative. And, and his company, um, the repertory company, allowed for an amazing opportunity, both for the actors and for me, I felt, as a writer-director, to work the craft, to have the opportunity to spend time doing the thing that you said you wanted to do in order to get practice in to get good at it. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outlier says you need, really need 10,000 hours to get proficient at a craft, at a, an artistic craft. And there's very little opportunity in our business of um, entertainment to have the ability to get that 10,000 hours in, whether you want to be an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, it's very difficult to, to find a way to get that 10,000 hours in. And that's just to get to the level of proficiency. It's not to get to the level of really good. So um, Cine Paris, I felt, offered one the opportunity. If you really took advantage of it, it offered you the opportunity to put in a lot of time and and get those hours in, even if it wasn't a full 10,000, it, it gave you the opportunity to get some practice in and, and level up, if you will, and get good at your craft. 
10,000 hours. I mean, that sounds so intimidating, but boy, I can see the point of that, you know, what he's getting at, just that much work, you're bound to really become proficient at something. Now, we're going to definitely be getting into uh, your time with uh, Senate Paris in a little bit. The first thing I want to do is ask you to share with our audience a little bit about your basic bio, your youth, so we can get to know Captain Carey a little. Well, I was born in the Bay Area, too. Um, I was born and raised in Menlo Park, uh, the shadow of Stanford University, where both my parents went to school. And uh, they stayed, and my dad went to Stanford Law um, and became a lawyer there in the Bay Area, um, in San Francisco, actually. And uh, my mom was a housewife and had three kids. I, um, her, She had... Uh, studied uh, speech and drama and music and was very interested in having her kids uh, get involved, at least in music. And so she had us all take piano lessons from a very early age. And uh, it was discovered that I was very gifted, I guess you would say, um, on the piano. Uh, When I was four or five years old, I just started I had an older brother who took piano lessons, and I started copying him. Before I ever took a lesson, I would sit down at the piano and play what he had been studying. And one day my dad remarked, boy, um, Doug's getting really, really good. And she said, that's not Doug, that's Kathy. And um, they kind of realized that uh, they needed to get me into lessons, and I progressed very quickly, and I started giving little recitals, I think at about the age of six or seven, and it led to concerts and recitals and um, all kinds of stuff. And by the time I was in high school, I had got my 10,000 hours in by the time I was in high school. I uh, performed uh, Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 21 with the Symphony Orchestra, and won the Bank of America Award for Fine Arts for the state of California and the Chopin Piano Award and performed at uh, the UNICEF concert at San Jose State University and all kinds of stuff. But um, this was my parents' dream, and I had been in school doing all of the plays and musicals and productions, and my heart was really in performing on stage as an actress. So I did go to school for one year, to college for one year as a music major, as a piano major, but I didn't really want to continue doing that. And so I um, transferred all of my stuff to uh, Southern California, UCLA, and moved here and started pursuing a career in the performing arts, in the entertainment business as an actress. And uh, within um, maybe the first year, year and a half, I got in my first movie. And um, that was the end of that. I, st- I quit school and, and that, was, that was it. I was done. I was done with school. I never graduated. And uh, I, I took off my career uh, as an actress uh, from there. I, I just never looked back. Now, so that means you're a bit of a connoisseur at all the arts, because I also have seen that you have talented with drawing and painting as, as well. It's a hobby. I love it. Um, I I have always enjoyed uh, drawing and painting, and um, 
I took classes for a while as a toll painter that's painting decorative painting on wood and and other objects and uh, I've done a lot of that and it's just it's a great outlet for me. I guess I'm very artistically oriented and not very um, technically oriented because I don't like you know math and science and all of those things I don't I don't think I excel in those areas very well at all. That's that's another area where you and I have a lot in common. I I have noticed <laughs> that the people tend to be either proficient in math and science on one side or in English and other types of things on the other side and I was always the English and uh, the arts and so on and I am not very good at math and science. But then I have known some people who mix those up but more often than not it seems like that's the breakdown. Yeah, you know they say that music is very mathematical. Yeah. But I, I, maybe, I don't know. I just never felt I was good at math and, uh, but I'm very good at music. So I don't, I don't know how they mix. <laughs> yeah. I really don't. <laughs> well, with that music in mind, you were basically would have been considered a child prodigy, right? I guess I would have. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when you're playing Mozart, that's, you know, that's not, just tickling the ivories a little bit. That's playing some pretty complex music. Um, so that, that would mean that you were trained from a young age in the repertoire of the masters, the great classical masters. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you can master that, then you can do pretty much anything. You know, at least you have good opportunity for that. I did. And, um, and I sang as well. And I did pursue a career as a singer for a little while. Um, we will be talking about that. Okay. I'll let you get to it on your own timeline then. <laughs> um, do you still try to uh, do any music today before we move away from that? I do a little. I uh, I still play the piano and I have my piano, um, my childhood piano. My parents bought me a really nice piano when I was um, just hovering on becoming a teenager and, and got very serious. I went through a little rebellious phase like all kids do. And I didn't want to practice. They had to make me and set a timer and all of that stuff. But then um, as I hit uh, 12, 13, 14, I got very serious with the piano. And I, and I really wanted to practice. And they bought me my own piano at that time. And I still have that piano. It's a very good piano. It's a seven-foot grand piano. And I really love that piano. Um, and I still do play, and I do love playing, and I accompany choirs and soloists for fun. Um, I write music. My husband, I met my husband singing in a band, so um, we do dabble here and there with some music. We've written a few songs. We actually have a couple of demos that have been recorded, and um, of a couple of songs that we've written, and um, it looks like we're submitting them to some well-known singers. Nobody that you would know has recorded them yet, but people that you know have them in their possession. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, David, you wrote a, uh, a wonderful Christmas song a number of years ago that uh, really ought to become a standard. And Celine Dion has it, but she hasn't opted to record it yet. Okay. So we'll see about that. And we've written another Christmas song, and uh, we've got a couple of people who are looking at it right now. 
You mentioned your husband, your husband's uh, Dave, and you and Dave and I have a long history by being a part of Cineparis, and we're going to get into that momentarily. Uh, you also have a company together called Edit Plus, and for the audience to know, Dave and Kathy were kind enough to employ me for almost nine years at their company, a digital video editing company. So one of the ways that we have a connection was uh, they, they kept me in money for a while. Well, it's a successful company. It's a successful business. It's been around for over 20 years, almost 20 years, and still going strong. Um, we're very proud of that company. And uh, Dave works with a lot of uh, celebrity talent, Emmy winners, Academy Award winners, as well as just your average everyday actors and directors and producers. He edits uh, demos and sizzle reels and movies and everything that you would digitally edit for film and TV. It's astonishing to me when I'm watching TV, and I, I watch a lot of TV, I admit it, when I see uh, commercials, when I see shows, I see so many people that I have personally interacted with who came in to Dave to get their demo reel done over the years, so they are everywhere. They are. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we sit and watch TV, oh, that's my client, that's my client, that's my client. So <laughs> it is astonishing. Now let's talk about stories. Tell me about your first memories of stories. I don't know if you were a child where the parents perhaps read stories to you or if it came through film or television, but tell us about your first exposure to stories and realizing how much you love them. Well, my parents read stories to me and taught me how to read before I started school. So I was actually reading before I went to kindergarten and I loved it. I loved stories and in fact, I can remember as a kid that I used to write stories. I wrote little books. I had would illustrate them. I made covers for them. I had and and throughout the books they had little pictures, and I drew the little pictures in them too. And and um, I I actually because we're moving to a new place and we're going through a lot of stuff. I found some of these little books that my mother had kept uh, in her things, and we're going through some of her stuff now, too. So, um, yeah, stories have always been very important to me. Now, that's you, you touched on a couple of things I was going to mention. One, um, I want to thank you again for being on the program, because I know Dave and you are in the process of a move, <laughs> and I know how complicated moves can be, so I appreciate you taking the time. Um, as for those little stories you wrote, I was just going to ask you, do you still have those? And you said you just found them as part of that move. That's That must be a real interesting thing to find. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. I mean, I remembered that I had written these things and I remembered having done them, but I didn't think that I had them. And I couldn't remember what they looked like, but seeing them actually in the flesh, so to speak, is um, it's kind of like, wow, um, yeah, they actually do exist. And I, and I my memory uh, really is true. So you grew up, you were in, completely ensconced in the arts. You learned piano. You were a singer. Now we find you were already writing. You love stories. You were doing artwork. So let's move into how you started transitioning towards a professional career. Now, in the 70s, if I understand correctly, you were a professional singer working in Las Vegas for at least a period of time. Is that correct? Uh, 70s and 80s, mostly the 80s. Dave and I uh, worked together as a duo. Um, actually, I met Dave singing in a band. He was already in this other group called Scott McEwen and Company. I auditioned for the group. 
and got in. They wanted to have two guys and two girls, but they could never find another girl. So it just ended up being those two guys, Scott and Dave and me. And um, what ended up happening is Scott didn't read music and didn't have a musical background. He just had a voice. He was, he was a good singer, but he didn't have any musical theory, training, any of that. Dave had worked as a singer from when he was a kid, had done USO shows and musical theater and worked with some notable people. And I had all this musical background. So, so Dave and I wrote all the arrangements and created all the harmonies. And then when Scott got sick uh, and couldn't perform on some of the gigs, Dave and I just rewrote everything for two-part harmony and went and did the gigs ourselves. And we were already kind of deciding that we liked each other. And uh, so we said, you know what? I think it's just going to be the Kathy and Dave show. <laughs> so we, uh, we quit the group and decided to form a duo and um, ultimately got married, obviously. <laughs> um, but we, one of the things that happened along the way is before The Voice and before American Idol, um, there was the original version of those shows was the John Davidson Singers Summer Camp. And we applied and got accepted. Now, thousands and thousands of people applied. So we were very fortunate to get accepted to this. Uh, it was it was only held for two years. There were two sessions each summer. So there were four total sessions at this um, camp that John held. And at the time, there were the top musicians of the day coming out and mentoring us, like um, Shirley Jones and, um, you know, Shields and Yarnell and um, the top people, the top entertainers of the time of the late 70s and early 80s. <laughs> Obviously, it's a long time ago. Uh, but the top entertainers of the day. And all of our coaches were the top musical directors of the day. Our musical director had been working for the Letterman and um, Frank Sinatra Jr. and uh, people like that. And, and these people would uh, write and arrange for their group, for their you know individual singers. And then we performed with a band at the Avalon Bowl every weekend. So we had all of these people coming in and mentoring us and coaching us, and we, it lasted four weeks. And it was a very um, exclusive program, very similar to what's being done on American Idol and The Voice today, but it wasn't on TV. It was just live and in person at the time. And interestingly enough, there was a woman who photographed the first year which was 1978. We were there in 1979, and she photographed the 1978 and um, all the all the happenings that year. And she has compiled a book because um, it's the 40th anniversary, and um, she's gotten in touch with a lot of the people who were there that year, and some people who were there in 1979, including me and Dave. 
people that she could find and um, have now told their stories. What happened? Where did these people end up 39 years later? And has compiled it all into a book. And we're having a reunion with John Davidson um, in October. Oh, that's fantastic. On Catalina. Oh, man. I, I, I don't mean this in any way uh, inappropriate. I didn't realize John Davidson was still with us. It's nice to know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, he is still out there performing Broadway, um, Broadway shows and, um, and live performances all over the place. For yeah. possible younger listeners, John Davidson back in the 70s was a very, very well-known, uh, extraordinarily handsome man who did a lot of uh, hosting of shows and, um, and also a singer and so forth. So very big name in the 1970s and beyond. He was a guest host and slated to become the replacement for Johnny Carson for mm. The Tonight Show. If you're being considered to replace Johnny Carson, potentially, then you, you've got some clout. That's that's impressive. He had his own talk show for a while. He hosted a lot of game shows. He was um, he was one of the hosts of That's Incredible. He was very, very famous in the 70s and, and 80s. And then, of course, uh, the 90s and the aughts and and now haven't been uh, as kind. I mean, we age, people age and, and new people become popular and, uh, you know, the old people are not so popular anymore. It's, it's what happens. So you ended up in Vegas. Dave and you had a, the duo, you were sort of your Captain and Tennille kind of duo going there in Vegas for a while, correct? We did, yeah. How did that come about? Um, well, that's how it came about. We started with um, John Davidson and we met some people there. And one of the people we met was our coach, Pat Valentino. And through him, I got um, involved in um, opening for Roy Clark at Harris in Tahoe and Bill Cosby at Harris in Reno. And then we were the featured singers for Peggy Fleming at Harris in Tahoe for a couple of months. And then we worked at the Sahara in Las Vegas. And so we were, um, we were making the rounds of all the main showrooms, um, Vegas, Tahoe, and Reno. But the problem that, and what we saw happening was that the business, that business was changing. And um, of course the music business had been changing um, it started very slowly in the 70s, but in the 80s, it like zoomed. It's, it started changing really fast. And Vegas seemed to be the last holdout, but it was changing too. And by the end of that decade, that whole business had changed. The whole Vegas showroom business had completely changed. So when we started, every showroom had a band, an orchestra, and an orchestra leader on salary. And by the end of the decade, they were all gone. <laughs> all those people were gone. Mm. And um, the showrooms were no longer um, employing major uh, headliner acts with opening acts. They were mostly doing Broadway shows and comics and self-contained acts. And you could get in there as a headliner if you had a hit number one single and you were very, very popular. Or you could get in there if you could uh, command the showroom like a Celine Dion or they built the showroom for you like uh, Donnie and Marie, like they did later on. But all of the acts that had been headliners up to that point um, just sort of went to Branson <laughs> or yeah. went, went elsewhere because mm -hmm. they just weren't, they were not wanting to spend that kind of money 
on those big headliner acts with uh, the big orchestras and stuff. They they wanted to spend them on Cirque du Soleil and acts like that. So last question about the music side of the career, at least from back then, uh, what type of repertoire did Dave and you have? What kinds of stuff were you doing? We were doing popular music. What at the, at the time was considered pop and light rock. Okay. Um, what you would nowadays consider to be um, probably country crossover because it, things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> the music business changes and things, classifications change. Um, but what we were doing was at the time considered popular music um, and what was what you were hearing on the radio at the time. So let's move into more about stories here. As I mentioned earlier, you are pulling double duty here because you are both an accomplished actress and an accomplished writer. So let's start with the acting side of things. You had already been acting before you met Stephen Mitchell and joined Cineparis, correct? I was, yes. I actually started acting in school. I did plays and, and musicals and things, but um, I really started acting when I first moved to Los Angeles, professionally acting when I first moved to Los Angeles. And um, I started doing movies. I was actually up for um, a television pilot to call Breezen, uh, which didn't go. It was supposed to go at NBC, but um, well, unfortunately it didn't go. It was a cool concept, though, ahead of its time, uh, combining uh, live action and animation. It was very cool. Wow. Um, yeah, before before that was ever a cool thing to do. And um, Real quick with that, would that have been as a, uh, a lead actress? Would that have been part of an ensemble? Uh, that was a co-host. I would have been the co-hostess. Oh, okay. Um, the the non-celebrity co-hostess with a celebrity co-host, to a different celebrity co-host to come in each week um, with me, and we would have gone on an animated bus somewhere. <laughs> the concept was really cool. NBC loved it, but they were like, yeah, but, you know, the production company, they were looking at the production company and the producer, and they were like, yeah, but we don't know you, and we don't know your track record. We like the pilot, but we don't know you can pull off 13 episodes. So. Yeah, until you pull off 13 episodes. It's the old Catch-22, you know? But. Yeah, it's the same old story. But um, I did several movies, and um, and I, like I said, I did that pilot. And then I saw Steven's ad, and, and I'd taken some classes and workshops and things. And I decided to give it a go, and... Um, and I started working with Stephen. When I started working with Stephen, it wasn't the repertory company the way you knew the repertory company. It was really just when Stephen was early on gathering actors around him, working with their marketing materials, and then doing a movie. And then, generally speaking, he would just let everybody go after he finished the movie, and then, and then he'd sort of start all over again for the next movie. But I didn't go. <laughs> And, so, and he kind of realized that maybe there was a reason to keep the actors on and continue doing projects and developing these TV shows as a tool to develop the actors further and make them better, get their skills going. Interview show and discussions were the first two that we um, developed. And he, he, I think I was interview number two or three. And I would know I was discussions number two. And a lot of this stuff, when we first started doing it, was very improvisational. And, of course, interview always was improvisational in nature. 
But um, I think he had done a couple of interviews by the time I did mine. But I just came for my weekly meeting and he said, you want to do a show? And it's like, sure. He's like, no, I mean, today? He's like, um, okay. It's like, uh, what are we going to do? And he's like, oh, we'll get to that. And it's like, okay. And then we had our weekly meeting and then it's like, um, are we going to talk about it? Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, and so we're, you know, we need to drive over to the studios. Okay. And as we're driving over to the studio, we're going to talk about the show. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> and finally we get to the studio and it's like, okay, here's the story. So, okay. Finally we got to the story and I played Marilyn Hal Becker, the wealthiest madam in the world. And, um, and there wasn't a lot of, uh, story there um but he just kept telling me be you and handle this very business-like she this isn't like prostitution to you this is like a business no matter what i say no matter how provocatively i try to engage you in any aspect of the business it's a business and so i just i stayed on that and um and he said it got more calls than any other interview that ever aired so I thought that was interesting and fun and I loved it and at that point he wasn't letting us do more than one because he wanted you to be identified with that one particular interview now at a certain point I think after he got the um, first look deal with TriStar I ended up I think doing 10 or more um, and they were all fun and I loved them I loved every one of them um, it was a, a fabulous uh, form and exercise and fun thing to do as an actor because you're really focused and thinking on your feet and right there with the interviewer and of course the cameras are all trained on you for 30 minutes and you have to stay in character and you have to really think about your answers and you can't break. You have to, you have to stay um, in character. So it's it's a fascinating exercise as an actor. And the discussions we did. I know it was discussion number two, and it was kind of the same thing. It was like I was came to my weekly meeting. It was like you want to do a show, and it's like okay, and let's go over to the studio. And um, I'm t- I'm trying out this uh, format, and um, we're going to talk to each other. And I did it with him. Um, and he was on camera for that as well. And it was uh, sort of a police IA interview type thing. And uh, and we went back and forth. We, we kind of uh, talked about how the, the arc of it would go. And it aired. And Mike Figgis, who was doing internal affairs at the time, called and wanted to get a copy of it because it was so realistic to what he felt um, an internal affairs interview would be, that he wanted to watch it while he was working on his movie. Yeah. And, um, and he wrote me a nice letter about um, how much he enjoyed watching it uh, and when he sent it back. So um, it was fun. I enjoyed like I said, as an actress, working on these projects was was a really good exercise and it was a really good way to practice your craft. I was just saying to add to those 10,000 hours. 
Exactly. I mean, what opportunities are actors getting unless you're doing a lot of stage work and stage work is not film work. Yeah. Uh, it's just not the same. So unless you're getting hired a lot and cast in a lot of projects, you're not getting an, an awful lot of opportunity to be on camera. And as I would say, when I would sit with my clients, the actors that I worked with when I was writing and directing these projects for them, I would say you need to sit and watch yourself on camera because that's the best acting class of all. I know lots of actors don't like to watch themselves on camera. They they get really self-conscious, and it's it's really hard to watch yourself on camera. But once you can kind of divorce yourself from what you look like and what you sound like and really watch yourself as a third person, as an audience member, and critique yourself and say, look, that part I believed, that part I didn't, that part was pretty good. Okay, yeah, I really got that I really believe that part, that part, no, 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 that's that, you were phoning it in there, you know, and once you can really do that and honestly assess your performance, you can get better. You can learn so much from watching yourself and go back and do it again. Now, let me take us back for a minute, just in case uh, people listening have not heard the previous episode, my first interview with Stephen Mitchell, uh, our mutual friend that you're talking about. He created Cineparis. It's basically a repertory for actors and writers and directors and producers. It's kind of a training ground, as you're describing right now. And various shows were created in order to give writers a chance to write, directors a chance to direct, and primarily actors a chance to practice their craft with these projects. You mentioned Interview, one of Stephen's most highly innovative and successful programs. And as you stated, you did 10 episodes. Is that a record 10 more than anybody else? Is that most? Oh, no, no. I had a couple of clients, uh, Katie Ellis and uh, John. Oh, what was, uh, what was John's last name? Um they did way, I think John did 30 or more. Oh. And I think Katie did too. Um, they did so, they were doing them right and left. <laughs> they were doing them all the time. Are you the one, I remember hearing this story, are you the one that said when you first met Stephen, it, it was at a laundromat? That wasn't me. Was that no. somebody else? Okay. That's somebody else. <laughs> it's a sort of casual nature for the early days. Like you said a bit ago, I came in quite a bit uh, later. But so Cine Paris was this thriving, amazing place that you were all part of. As you've been hinting at, you became one of Stephen's, um, I don't know what you would call it, but you were there working as part of the company. You also were started having clients of your own. You would write for them, the various programs that were created for it, primarily with... Uh, discussions which you mentioned that'd be a, just a roughly half hour little teleplay i guess we could call it where it's just two people and they're just discussing something and you would write those for your clients or for one of the two of our clients and others who were there to uh, train people and then when they would shoot them and they'd put them on um cable television right and what a great training ground for me as a writer director i mean now we're gonna. I'm gonna switch into writer director hat here and say, "Don't go too far." I won't go too far. Okay. But, but what a great training ground for me as writer director because who gets the opportunity? Unless you're on staff at a TV show, who gets the opportunity to write 
day in, day out, day in, day out. I mean, I literally um, would be working five hours a day, five days a week. And I'd have two people who'd come in every hour on the hour. They'd sit down in front of me. They'd go through what I had previously written, whether that was, you know, five minutes worth of stuff, 15 minutes worth of stuff, 20 minutes worth of stuff, whatever it was. And they would um, perform it and I would direct it and massage it and work with them on it and get the performance up to where I wanted it to be. And then they would bring out their pens because they would be reading it from their pads that they had written on before. They would bring out their pens and they would look at me expectantly like, okay, now you're going to be brilliant and write some more. And I would dictate more dialogue. And I was expected on the spot to be brilliant and dictate more of the script. Sometimes I was brilliant, sometimes not so much, but um, there was an expectation that you could be on the spot brilliant, that you could write something uh, on demand. And the expectation and the having to do that day in and day out makes you good at doing that. You just, you know, just the the practice of doing it. It's like anything else you practice. If you practice something, you're going to get better at it. It just happens. Just like practicing the piano. You're going to practice it every day. You're going to get better at it. It's the same thing applies. You practice your acting every day. You're going to get better at it. You practice your writing every day. You're going to get better at it. And I can attest to this because as I made reference at the beginning of our interview, uh, that's how you and I first met. I answered the ad, and it was one that you happened to place. And I came, and I ended up joining up and became one of your clients. And I was able to have you write parts for me in the various programs. I did, didn't did do ultimately a lot of the acting. I started that way, but um, we definitely did have plenty of that. And I can attest to the fact that you would sit there, and you would just simply dictate a script. I would write it down, and then I would go and rehearse it and learn it and come back and show it to you. And so I can actually attest to everything you're saying. It was a fascinating, fascinating thing to be a part of. It was, I'm, I have to say. And, and kudos to Stephen for creating it and, um, and that it lasted as long as it did. It's unfortunate that it's no longer still in existence in the way that it was. But I have to say that I'm very grateful to have been a part of it because had I not, I don't believe that I would be writing and directing with the same skill that I am today. Well, we all have a lot to thank Stephen for. And just uh, in case anybody didn't hear again, the first episode, Stephen has a form of Cine Paris that is uh, existing and actively working for today. He's just doing it out of Ireland and using Skype to do it. So that's pretty fascinating, modern <laughs> technology allowing that. Um, now let's talk about your philosophy of acting. Here's a question. This is a maybe slightly loaded question, but do you subscribe to the so-called method approach? <laughs> yeah. uh, I subscribe to whatever works for you. Okay. As an actor, I think there are many different approaches. I think the method has its place with certain actors. Some can make it work. The problem for me with the method um, and with some of the acting approaches is 
that they don't take into consideration the fact that acting for film, now this is acting for film and not for the stage, but acting for film and television has certain demands. And it demands that an actor be able to duplicate a performance over and over again because we've got different takes with different camera angles and they've got to be cut together and they've got to look seamless when they are cut together. So you cannot have your emotions take you away into Never Never Land. I mean, you're, um, and, and the method is all about tapping into and, and becoming emotional. And the problem with that is that your um, emotions are a tricky and unpredictable thing. Yeah. And without you being able to control them, which how can you control your emotions? Nobody can really control their emotions once they let them take over. Then you have a performance that's wildly inconsistent from take to take. And then the editor that is not, and the director in concert with each other become stymied. Their hands are tied in their ability to use maybe the take that they really, really want to use that is the best take, but it doesn't match. And so they can't, they have to use a lesser take that does. So that's my only problem with the method. But I have to say that actors have to use what works for them. I have to allow that actors are going to be human beings and human beings have to use what works. I can't deny you the opportunity to use the thing that is going to work for you. Exactly. So the potential, we'll just put it this way, the potential problem with, say, the method approach is that the idea of being, as they say, in the moment well, if you're in the moment for take one, but you don't recapture and re replicate that same moment for take three, then you can't really cut it together very well in the post-production. Well, take one may be a master shot, and take three may be a two-shot, and take 16 may be a close-up, maybe your close-up. Correct. You see what I'm saying? And we may need to cut between take three and take 16, and that may not jive. Your moments may be completely different. Got it. Again, you need to have a craft or a technique that allows for you to recreate those moments realistically and spontaneously each and every time. Now, if the method allows you to do that, awesome and great. Um, I've not seen that uh, very often. I've not seen, and maybe ever, but, but again... If you only need one take and we're only shooting one angle, then yay. Then great. And, yeah. and it's awesome. And nope. we'll get it. We'll get you. You yeah. get yourself in the moment and we'll get it. And it's and it's awesome. And I can and I can use that. So as a director, it's a hard thing for me to quantify. And just to be clear, anybody listening, this is not any way bashing any particular approach. If it works, it that's all that matters. We're just fine-tuning some things here and looking at some potential problems. Right. Now, keeping in mind our central theme in this program of storytelling, should actors in their performances be seen as storytellers? Should, should they be burdened with that label, or are they, in fact, storytellers when they're acting? Long story short, yes. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, actors are storytellers, absolutely. Because we tend to think of storytellers being the writers, maybe the directors, or uh, you know, someone that's narrating, but the actors themselves, they're telling the story, aren't they? Absolutely. Tell me how actors, right along with the writers and directors, can then actually be storytellers then with what they do. How, how does that work? Well, filmmaking is a collaborative art. Mm-hmm. All the way around. And never more did that come into my awareness more forcefully, let's say, than when I did my first professional film, Reflections of a Life. I had written a screenplay. I had heard every line of dialogue, of course, in my head, the way I wanted it to be said, the way I envisioned it being said, the way I thought it was going to be said. And then, of course, the actors came on the set and they interpret it and say it the way that they feel it. Mm. And it's like, oh, wow. Hello. Um, I... I didn't expect it to come out of your mouth that way. Um, but in many ways, it's better. Yeah. You know, the way that they interpret it is better. And then, of course, if we're really going to talk about a collaborative art, I want my DP to come to me and say, hey, you know, I know you want this, but what if, what if we add this? And it's like, oh, yeah, if we add that, see, that's something that I wouldn't have thought of because I'm not a DP. But if we add that, it's going to make it better. Let's do that. And the same way if, if I'm seeing the scene play out like a very specific way in my head, but my editor says, yeah, but it could go like this. And he turns it on its head and it's like, oh. I had never thought of it like that because I'm not an editor. And, and suddenly the scene takes on even more meaning than it had in my head because my editor saw it from his point of view or her point of view because they're an editor. They have an editor brain. You know, I, I don't have an editor brain. I have a director brain. And... Everybody has something to add to the collaboration. And if you cut that off by saying, but my way is the only way, then you're disallowing other people's contributions and they may have something awesome to add that will only enhance the final product. Now, see, that, that, that's it's just a great answer because... I was looking at it from the point of view of actors being storytellers, and you confirm that they are and should be, as well as the fact as a collaborative art form filmmaking, everybody involved is, a, is telling a story with their own particular skill set being brought to the project, which is which is brilliant. Thank you for that answer. <laughs> now, uh, just for the uninitiated, DP, that's a director of photography. That would be the person that essentially runs the camera or helps establish what the shots will look like, correct? That's the person who is directing the whole photographic department. So, yes, they they run the camera or they are in charge of the camera operator and the, the focus puller. They're also in charge of the gaffer and all of the lighting department. So it's the whole camera department and lighting department. 
Got it. Very important role. And they work very closely with the director of the picture. Yes. I got you. Okay. Now share with our audience. This is something that's always fascinated me and certainly got a, a lot of insight into it when uh, when I was part of Cine Paris. But share with our audience the art of constructing a storytelling performance. Again, we're still in the acting mode. How do you approach as an actor a script that you, for instance, one that you've not written, somebody else has written? How do you approach that script? As an actor, how do I approach the script? Um, I read it um, over and over and over many times because I want to see what is the arc of the entire story. And then I want to see what is the arc of my character within the entire story. How does my character affect the story? What What is my character doing to affect where the story goes, how it moves, um, how does my character move it forward or, or try to stop it from moving forward. And I want to know what are the traits that are written into my character and what am I bringing to the character? How am I bringing this character alive? Because obviously they are hiring me for the things that I bring um, they've written the character in a very specific way, obviously, uh, whoever's written it, but they're hiring me. So they're hiring me to bring this character to life because of who I am and the way I am going to play this character. The buzzword of today is what my brand is. And so that means they're going to expect a certain kind of take or approach from me to the character because I'm not going to play the character the way say um, Jane Fonda okay. I wouldn't play the character the same way or Lily Tomlin the, the, those two characters would be totally different than the way I would play the character yeah that's true. all right so uh, they're they're hiring me because I'm going to bring a different energy to the character than either one of them. So I just, I read it and read it and read it. And I want to see how the character fits within the piece and the, what the relationships are with the other characters and how my character impacts the other characters in the story overall. So what, what is that like for you? This is something that non-actors listening might find fascinating. What is it like for you when you, you get yourself a really good script. It's a well-written script. It has a really well-developed character for you. What is that like? What I can't imagine the joy that comes from something like that. <laughs> it's awesome. It's like, wow, it's really, you get to sink your teeth into it. You get to go, this is awesome. This is so much fun. You spend hours, hours, literally, um, going over and over it, um, learning who the character is, deeply delving into it, because a well-written script has so much subtext and uh, deep character information that is below the surface that you can dig into and find with each additional reading through of the script, you'll find something new. So I want to find all of that stuff so that when I'm doing each scene, all of that nuance, all of that great subtext can come out without me even having to 
work on it necessarily without having to plan those things. It'll just be there because I know who this woman is and it's part and parcel of the performance. Do you find yourself already formulating in your mind as you read a script how you're going to approach the character? Is that already happening or do you go through it all the way first and then come back? Or I go through it all the way first and then come back. And then you start formulating how you might approach it and so forth? Yeah. It's a fascinating process. It's not as easy as the non-actors would want to believe. That's <laughs> a lot of work. No, it's not. It seems really easy because I'm going to tell you something that really didn't dawn on me until I was working with Peggy Fleming. And there was this one gal there who did uh, ballet-like skating. I mean, she and a partner did... Um, it was a different, she and a partner were, were like featured skaters in the act. And they did all this beautiful ballet work and lifts and things, much different than Peggy did um, and the other skaters in the act. And I commented to her how beautiful her skating was and I, how much I really loved it. And she had seen me working out in the gym and she had seen me doing my uh, ballet workouts because I'd been a dancer and I'd done ballet and jazz and and she was like well you're a dancer I started as a dancer you could do what I'm doing it it's not that hard and I started to watch her and I looked at it and it's like well she's not doing anything that much different than I used to do in ballet and I'm pretty strong and so when I got back to LA I decided to rent a pair of skates and go to a skating rink and give it a go. Forget about it. It was <laughs> like, no way, no way. I, I got out on the ice and it was like, oh, my ankles were wobbly and I couldn't stay up on the blade. And I, I tried to go out to the middle of the ice. And it was like, oh, no, I can't go out there. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know what? People who are really, really, really good at what they do make it look easy. They make it look easy. And other people look at it and go, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't. It just looks easy because they make it look easy. That is a very good point. As a musician, I learned how to play a few different instruments and I was never very good at any of them because I always felt that the instruments were controlling me and I just never got to the point where I could control the instrument. And it's the same thing here that you're saying, you know, those who can make it look easy have really, really mastered something. Yeah. Now here's a question. And if it's too weird and convoluted, we can always, you know, take care of it in post. <laughs> <laughs> how do you see the relationship between the written word and the job of an actor to bring that written word to life, you know, to, to tell a story. I mean, what is that relationship? Are you talking about the dialogue? Are you talking about the narrative? It could be a little bit of each and every. I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to sort of bring, because we're going to transition into putting another hat on you here on your writer's side in a moment. One of the things that I want from this show is to be able to have both actors and writers on and then be able to see each of the other person's roles from that person, like how the writers see acting of their words, how do actors approach the words written by writers, that kind of thing. So I'm trying to get an understanding for the audience about that relationship between the written word 
and the job of an actor to bring that written word to life as a storyteller. The written word contains all of the clues for me as the actor. Everything I need to know should be in that written word, whether it's the narrative or the dialogue. And it's not necessarily just my dialogue either. Other people's dialogue, whether overtly about me or sort of subtextually about me, would tell me also about my character. Yeah. So that's why I read the whole thing. I don't just read my character's dialogue. I read the whole thing because everything is going to inform me about my character and how my character fits in the whole story. So every word, every single word, the dialogue is particularly important because the way the character speaks tells me her level of education, where she comes from, what part of the country or what country she lives in, you know, what colloquialisms she uses. Did she go to college? Did she go to graduate school? Um, What kind of work does she do? And what buzzwords does she use about the work that she does? So does she use very familiar words, um, little, you know, catchphrases about the work that she does? So she's been doing it for a long time. Or is she very formal about the work that she does? So she's still using very formal words about the work that she does. So she hasn't been there very long. Every word that is spoken by my character is going to tell me about who she is. And every word that is spoken about her or around in the narrative is going to inform me about the character as well. Yes. And and therefore, as those things are revealed, we're learning about the story. What's this story about and that character's relation to the story and function in the story? So, yeah, that's uh, I don't think we have to worry about post-production on this question at all. I think (laughs) you nailed it quite well. (laughs) Oh, that was great. In fact, what you brought into that is, again, the idea that you want to know about the whole story, not just your character and the words that you're going to be performing, but the whole story and how you fit into it. Exactly. Excellent. Well, let's put on your other hat of writer for a minute here. You mentioned that you had already started writing some stories when you were very young. Maybe there was some naivete there as a child. Who cares? I mean, the fact is you were just expressing yourself. Once you got to be an adult, you started writing. Would your first work as a writer be what we've discussed already, and that is with Cine Paris? No, actually. Um, I dated a director, a writer-director, before I ever met Stephen, and um, he had a script that, uh, his several scripts that I, I read, and I thought, I want to try my hand at that. So I started to write a screenplay. Oh. And um, I don't even know if I ever finished it, but I know that I started it. And I just liked the idea of creating visual images um, that would be, be captured on film and creating a character and taking her through a story. I always liked writing stories. I I wrote stories uh, when I was in school. I was in an uh, advanced 
English classes throughout my high school years. So my senior year of English, I was taking a, a freshman year of college English or the equivalent thereof. So I was always um, taking these advanced level of English classes. And my senior year of English, my thesis was to make a film. I was making little films all through grade school and high school, and I didn't remember doing that. I completely blocked it out of my mind, uh, going into college, being a music major, and going after all this music stuff until I got into Cine Paris and Stephen was like, you have to write and direct. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> And, and I started writing and directing, and then suddenly I, I cast back and went, you know, I've done this before. I picked up my dad's 8 millimeter camera, and I made movies, and I wrote stories, and I this is what I should have been doing all along. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I, I had tried my hand at writing before, but, but intensely, no, I hadn't done it with the same intensity until I joined Cine Paris. It was always there then. There was a comprehensive fascination with filmmaking, not just acting, but you were interested in writing. You were interested in directing. You did these films when you were young. So obviously it was all right in there with you and you come to Cine Paris and Steven perhaps picked up on that and said, you need to do that. And off you went. I guess, yeah. I, I guess that's how it happened. <laughs> Maybe he had some psychic ability. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to mention some titles of your work as writer. So please feel free to share anything you'd like about those. And we're going to start with a couple of your short films, Reflection of a Life. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, that was the first thing that I wrote once I left Cine Paris, or Cine Paris kind of dissolved. I had wanted to write um, a movie about um, that was sort of based on my aunt's book. Um, my aunt had had lived through a diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. Um, my aunt was my mom's youngest sister, and so she was uh, closest in age to me of my mom's uh, sisters and. Uh, we were, she didn't have any daughters. And um, so we kind of grew close to each other. So I was keenly aware of what she went through. She uh, wrote a book about it. Um, her experience, uh, her book came out about the same time as um, the other book, First You Cry, uh, which she poo-pooed because she didn't cry. She was like, no, you don't cry. You get busy living. And, and so wow. she, um, and that was her philosophy. You get busy living. And, um, she lived her life that way. And I wanted to make a movie honoring her, but I couldn't, here's, here's where it all broke down. I had her book and I started writing the script, but life, as you may know, doesn't really follow a three act structure. And as I got to the end of the first act of my screenplay, it was like, yeah, now do I follow her life or do I follow the three-act structure? Hmm. And sitting with that dilemma, I sort of stopped and it stopped me. And I just didn't seem to, I couldn't seem to go any further. And uh, my husband, who's very smart about things, 
said, well, why does it have to be about her? Why can't it just be about some random woman? It can be about any woman who gets breast cancer. And it doesn't have to be a feature. It could just be a short. And I went, huh, okay. (laughs) So so I returned to the idea and wrote the short with the idea that I wanted to create a story that happened in one location. And I really can't describe it, the story, without describing my filmmaking philosophy about it as well, my directing philosophy about it. Sure. Because, (laughs) (laughs) so I have to go there. Um, I wanted to have people walk away from the film or at least have the experience as they were watching the film of being a fly on the wall so that they got, it was really an intimate experience with this woman who received this diagnosis of breast cancer. Not only, that was that was part of her life, not the totality of the story, but it was part of her story. But I wanted them to see a woman who was confronted with a number of challenges, this being one of them, and her decision to rise above the challenges of life and to live her life as fully as she could. And I wanted them to see that as intimately as possible. So I wanted it to set it in a place that you would see a woman with all her defenses and her guard down. So I set it in the bathroom um, and I set it so that you would mostly see Um, her reaction to the things that happened to her at the beginning of the day or the end of the day as she took away her public face and was there, honest, and without the public face on just confronting herself in the mirror, which is why I called it Reflections of Life. So I decided to set it mostly there, although... There are some scenes in the bedroom and there are some scenes outside of that locale, the bedroom and the bathroom, which are some flashback scenes that are taking place in her mind. But um, we set the camera in one spot and we never moved it so that we could achieve that fly-on-the-wall intimacy. Um, It's interesting that... Nobody who sees the film knows. They, I, I tell them that, they, that I don't move the camera and they still don't see it. They think the camera moves all over the place and it has the, the normal natural rhythm of a normal film because we pan and we tilt and we zoom and we, and we shoot and all kinds of reflections of other mirrors into the mirror and, and we go in, you know, we shoot the reflection into the bedroom and we turn the camera and shoot, in, but we never did move that camera. And people don't believe me when I tell them that I don't move the camera. It was a challenge for me as a director with my first project for 30 minutes to never move the camera and not bore you. Uh, But I think I accomplished that. Yeah, let let me do a better job of uh, of something I failed to do with Reflections of a Life. And I believe with the next couple I'm going to mention, you were writer, you were director, and you also starred in Reflections of a Life. I did, yeah. Yes. And I can attest to having been privileged to see the, uh, if not the, certainly one of the premieres on a big screen of the film, um, of the quality of it. 
And one thing that stood out for me in that film was you brought out not just what your protagonist is going through, the character you were playing, but also what the people in her life were experiencing, how they were affected by her dilemma, which I thought was fascinating. Well, I didn't want it to just be about her. You know, I wanted to show, you know, her friends, her family, and her significant other. Because it's not just one person. We don't, we don't live a solitary life. We live in concert with the other people in our lives. Tell us about Worth. Ah, Worth. Um, Worth uh, was inspired by a poem called The Touch of the Master's Hand. I literally um, have heard this poem, <laughs> I don't know, dozens of times, I think. And just one day, um, I heard somebody um, say that poem at, while I was in church in a talk. And I went, huh, that, that would make a really interesting uh, short film, a uh, basis for a short film. Yeah. And I went home and I wrote the script uh, in the next like hour I don't remember. And, uh, and then I put it away because I wasn't going to do any more short films. I had done Reflections of a Life. I had taken it out on the festival circuit. I had won a bunch of awards. I had had person after person after myriads of people tell me you have to make this into a feature. I had poo-pooed that idea and said, I don't want to become the breast cancer filmmaker. I'm not going to do it. And then finally said, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> My defenses got worn down. And I said, all right, I'm going to do it. And I had written the screenplay for the feature called One and Nine. And I went out um, and started pitching it. And then the writer's strike happened. Mm. And it was like, yeah, you can't pitch anything while the writer's strike is on, or you will never be able to join the Writers Guild and you will be blackballed in this town forever. And I went, okay. Uh, and I had an agent at the time who was my acting agent, but she had been a writer's agent in the past. And so she knew lots of people and she was, she loved my script. She loved the movie. She was sending me out to pitch and she was like, yeah, you can't, you can't pitch now. So I was like, okay. So I walked the picket line and I, you know, cause actors were supporting the writers and and um, I did all those things, but I didn't do anything during the writer's strike because there was no work. There was nothing. Right. So I was bored because, you know, there's nothing to do. So I uh, pulled this little script for Worth out of the drawer and said, gosh, you know, I could probably shoot this in one day, which means I could keep my costs down which means I could probably do it. And so I went to my husband and I said, what do you think? We could do this. We could do this, right? And he was like, okay. So I needed, um, because it, it, the central character is a violinist, a guy who's a janitor at an upscale auction house who can play the violin like nobody's business. Um, I didn't want to hire an actor to pretend. I wanted to hire a violinist. I would get him there for the acting. Mm. Um, as a director, having worked with actors of various levels, all the way from 
pretty much rank beginning, you know, because we had people come in just into Paris who had done virtually nothing on camera before, all the way up to I'd worked in Reflections of a Life with Linda Gray and Fred Lane. So I had worked with people at the top of their game all the way down to people at the bottom of the game. I figure I can work with somebody who has never acted before and I can get them to a level of performance. So I just happened to be at an event where they were doing what they used to do when they scored a film. So when they used to score films in the old days, they would screen the film and have the orchestra play live and record live. So they were doing that just to show people how it used to work. That everybody in the orchestra would wear a click in their ears and they would screen it on a screen and a guy would be conducting who also had the click in his ear. But they didn't have a full orchestra. They just had a partial, you know, small group. Yeah. And, uh, but they were doing it in the club. They had a few short films and they were showing us how it worked. And there was Sid Page, one of the top studio violinists in town, by the way, uh-huh. on the stand playing the violin. And I looked at him and I thought, well, he looks absolutely perfect and he plays the violin and he's really good. Come to find out, he's married to Bobby Page, who I knew because she was one of the top uh, contractors in town for studio singing. And I do some studio singing. So I knew her from that. Sounds rather serendipitous. Yeah. So so on one of the breaks, she said, you have to meet my husband, Sid Page. And he comes walking over and it's like, no, (laughs) get out. I wanted to meet you because you were up there playing the violin. I said, well, you have to meet my husband. So then, okay, so then I scheduled a dinner. We all went out to dinner. I gave him the script. I said, I want you to be in my movie. He was like, love to. Never acted a day in my life, but I think it would be fun. And that was the end of that. We, you know, I went into pre-production and the rest, as they say, is history. I love a story like that. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I know there are many examples throughout the years where someone who's never acted before, the director, the creator of the story, whatever, sees something and it just works. Well, it worked with him and he did a really fine job as an actor. I mean, it's not a huge role. I mean, it was a short, short film. It was only seven minutes long. But um, he gave me everything I wanted and a little bit more. And he played the violin like a dream. So uh, he's just superb. Now, just to clarify for the audience, uh, in very short uh, statement, what is Worth about? Worth is about how we should not judge people by their outward appearance. Okay. And what is the plot? (laughs) <laughs> the plot. Um, the plot is it takes place at an upscale auction house, and this older violin missing a string comes up for auction. Nobody wants to bid on it. They're bidding, you know, for a Ming vase, you know, ten thousand dollars. And I'm the auctioneer. I um, I'm about to let it go back when. Sid, who's one of the janitors, steps forward 
and says, allow me. And he picks up the violin, cuts off the errant string that's just hanging off and starts to play. And with just three strings on a four-stringed instrument, he makes the most beautiful music that you can possibly imagine. Everyone in the audience who had been real snooty and snarky up to that point melts. And you can imagine what happens next. Yeah. I want to comment briefly. What Kathy just did there for my listeners is when I asked her what the film was about, she actually told you what the film was about. She didn't tell you the plot. She told you what the theme was, what this story is actually trying to put across about humanity, the human condition. That's something that I know Stephen would be very proud of for both of us. <laughs> tell us about Dead Drop. That's the film for which our opening audio clip of this particular episode comes, correct? Yes. Dead Drop um, is an interesting uh, situation. I had an actor come to me and ask me if I would write and direct and produce something for him. Uh, he wanted me to do a full feature, and I said, yeah, I would be happy to do that. Um, and he wanted to do like a $2 million feature. Okay. I said, you know, a full feature could take uh, a couple of years. I mean, from start to finish, maybe even longer. I, you know, we've got to write a script. You've got to, you've got to get it into shape. You've got to be happy with it. And then we've got to get all the locations, do the whole pre-production thing and, and development and figure out where we're going to shoot it, put the crew together, do the production, which will, would take probably six to eight weeks, depending on the schedule, to, you know, what kind of schedule we wrote for it. And then the whole post-production. And, and for an action film, he wanted it to be sort of a born identity action film. I said, for an action film, you've got a lot of special effects and post-production, and it's like it, it can it can run a good um, six months, nine months, you know, to, it's depending on whether we have a, a decent chunk of the budget left or if we're squeaking by, you know, and we're having to get favors and things like that. And so I said, maybe the thing to do here is to do a short film first. And he was like, yes, let's do that. <laughs> so yeah. I said, okay, because we can do a short film in, you know, about a teeny tiny span of time, like about three months, maybe six months all told, but we can probably get it done in about three months. And he was like, okay, so... He had some very specific guidelines that he wanted me to hit. It needed to be a sort of a born identity, James Bondian action adventure. And he needed to play a character that spoke with a British accent and an American accent. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, because he wanted to showcase as an actor that he could speak with a credible American accent, even though he's from England. Right. And it's like, well, okay. So let me come up with an idea in my mind that fits all of that. So I came up with an idea that he was a double agent um, and that his double agent, you know, his undercover, deep cover agent was uh, spoke with the American accent, but that his he was really British and that it dealt with uh, poisoning the water supply 
of Los Angeles and that um, that he was allied with a Russian agent and that they had tested it in some African village. But he didn't know that when they brought it to Los Angeles, that was what was going to happen. And now that he knew he was he was surreptitiously going to the FBI and unbeknownst to him, an upper level FBI agent was in on it. And so it's all this twisty stuff. Yeah. But ultimately, in the end, he and the the lower level FBI guy um, conspire against the upper level FBI guy, and they and they arrest his Russian guy and the FBI guy and catch them together at the end. So it's it's a fun film. It's got some special effects. It's got a car explosion and a car chase and. Some shootouts and, and all the all the requisite things you need in a born identity Bondian type film. He speaks with his American accent. He speaks with his British accent, and uh, yeah, he does all those things. That sounds exciting. <laughs> now you've also ventured into the world of television. Tell us about Mom and Me. Oh, Mom and Me. Yeah, Mom and Me is a web series that I wrote for myself and Muse Small, who um, has worked with some really amazing people. Uh, She was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which um, was directed by Milos Forman. Um, She's worked with him a couple of times, and she's worked with Ida Lupino and Woody Allen and James Ivory. And um, so... She's uh, she's done a number of awesome things, and she wanted a project that was fun and funny because she's a comedian. And so I developed this premise whereby um, we are mother and daughter. She's my mother. I'm her daughter. And she is wacky and wild and sort of a product of the 60s, uh, you know, a hippie throwback. And I'm very conservative in the uh, banking industry. And I get downsized out of a job. I very quickly go through my 401k and my savings, and I am either going to live in my car or I have to move back in with my mother. And uh, so I end up having to move back in with my mother. And every episode is about all the ways that we just clash, uh, but in humorous ways. It's a sort of mother-daughter, odd couple kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. Now, you've written for both drama and comedy, as we've explained here. Do you see a difference in your approach from one to the other as a writer? Um. Not really, because they both, um, I'm approaching them both as character driven. So every time I write something, I'm always coming at it from the characters first and the relationships. So who are the characters? What are their relationships? What are those conflicts? What am I dealing with? And whether they can be dealt with from a humorous standpoint or from a dramatic standpoint. Um, It really doesn't matter. We live in a world of people, and people have relationships. And that's what I think people are most interested in seeing, is how 
other people relate to each other. So it's just a matter of whether they relate to each other in a humorous way. And we can laugh about the foibles and the, the ways that they don't get along. Or we cry and get sad about the ways that they don't get along and we wish they could. Whether it's comedy, whether it's drama, conflict is kind of at the center of it. Conflict is at the center of it. Conflict within the relationships. Excellent. How do you tend to find story ideas? As the you know, does anything particular happen a lot with you, or is it complete anything? It could be anything. Sometimes they come out of my own life, and sometimes I can be watching. You know, like I was watching some one of these news magazine shows, and I saw something and went, "Huh, that would make an interesting story." Not what I saw on the show that I would write about that particularly, but I took that and went, what if that was applied to something else? Then that would make an interesting story. So, you know, I can read something in a, in a tweet. Literally, I read this tweet about these two men who would meet on a street corner and walk to a coffee shop and have coffee every morning for like 60 years. And then one day, the guy shows up and the other guy just isn't there because he got hit by a car and died. Oh. And he just isn't there. And I thought, that's tragic. And what an interesting story. And that would make a story. I mean, you could, you could literally write a story about that and what their past relationship was and their kids and their wives and the whole... I mean, you could make a whole movie out of their whole relationship and how they met in the first place. And, you know, maybe they fought in the war together. Maybe you just, you don't know how they came to know each other, but it makes for a really interesting story. Fascinating. So it just happens. I, as a fellow writer, note that it just comes to you. You suddenly realize that looks like something that could be really interesting. If it was sort of dramatized, it turned into a story. It just comes from anywhere. If you're open and you just live your life and you look around and there are ideas for stories everywhere. Yeah. Because people are fascinating. Yeah. And that's really what we're telling stories about is people. Speaking of the people, they become characters. How do you approach creating characters? I'm sure some are based, as with reflections, based on your aunt's story. Some of them are completely fictionalized. How do you go about approaching creating characters? It depends on the story. Sometimes I create them, like you said, some, some are completely fictionalized. Some are based on real life. Some are based on real life. And then I take some aspect of them to an extreme or I give them quirks that the real person didn't have. I wrote this um, screenplay about a husband and wife who go on a uh, mountain retreat for their anniversary and while they're there she discovers what looks like a gift bag in the trunk of their car and she opens it up and it's divorce papers Ooh. and yeah but you know that's based on a true story because i have a friend who went away to Vegas for the weekend with her husband for their anniversary. And when she came home the next morning to drive her daughter to school, there was a gift bag on the front seat of the car and in it was divorce papers. And I went, what? Oh. And I said, I've got to put that in a movie. Yeah. Um, it's just too wild and 
interesting. And and she said, yeah, you can put it in. You can put it in a movie. Of course, I changed the actual way it happened to something different. But I said, it's just too delicious. Not, I mean, it's just too unexpected that you would go on your anniversary and get divorce papers. It's like, why would somebody do that? But somebody did that in real life. And I thought, well, if somebody did it in real life, then somebody's going to do it in one of my movies. It's just, uh, you know. (laughs) What about dialogue? How do you approach dialogue? Dialogue is an interesting thing. Because I know that a lot of people think that dialogue should sound just the way that people talk. That it should just be like normal conversation. And if you listen to the way people talk, if you actually, if somebody's actually listening to this interview, for instance, they're going to hear me start and stop sentences, uh, say, start to say something, and then not finish it and go on to something else. People talk in very fragmented ways that's not really interesting at all, yeah. necessarily. Dialogue is meant to communicate things about the character or move along the plot or the story. It is only meant to do those things. It is not meant to sound realistic, except in the context of it's meant to sound the way that character should speak. It's meant to be in that character's voice. So it's either meant to communicate information we need to know, or it is meant to move the plot forward, or it is meant to enhance the relationship. It is meant to do something specific. It has a specific purpose. It's not just there for no purpose. Dialogue is never there for no purpose. It has to have a purpose. It has to communicate something specific and move things forward or you delete it. You get rid of it. Harsh, but true. I like it. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I mean, I've been writing long enough now to know that if the dialogue doesn't do something, you got to get rid of it. What's the importance of proper three-act structure in feature films, then? Oh, proper three-act structure is absolutely critical. In fact, I am adamant that you have to have structure. Now, you can play around with it once you've got the structure in place, but you have to have the structure. And um, when I read somebody else's stories or screenplays or even in short film pieces, or if somebody wants me to write with them, and uh, so I help them by doing doing a rewrite, the first thing I do is I work from macro to micro, and macro means structure. You have to make sure the structure is in place, and that's three-act structure, the beginning, middle, end. And if your structure is not in place, it's the underpinning of everything. So if it's not in place, everything else starts to fall apart. You can have great dialogue. You can have snappy, cool dialogue. You can have great, quirky, interesting characters. But if the structure isn't there, it all doesn't mean anything. It just lays there. It's like having a suit missing an arm, you know, or doesn't have the back, you know, but it has two arms in the front. Well, you don't have a suit then. You have to have your structure. It underpins everything. 
I suppose it could also be like trying to build a house without a blueprint <laughs> or without a, a, a at without least a, a foundation. Purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think what you're describing there helps push forward the principal theme of our program, and that is the importance of story being told. And without three-act structure, do you really have a story or do you have a sort of meandering God knows what? Yeah. Now, there is something called the mini-movie method, and it is an eight-act structure Mm. um, that I have learned. Um, I haven't actually tried to write anything with that structure, but it is basically taking the three-act structure, which is the first act, and then the first half of the second act, the second half of the second act, and then the third act. Okay, so you've got this overall arching three-act structure, and it's taking and dividing each one into 15 pages or 15 minutes. So if you divide each one into 15 pages or 15 minutes, it would equal eight acts. Yeah, okay. And at the end of each 15 pages, something has to happen to propel us into the next one. It doesn't hurt. And the guy who kind of sort of came up with it um, has sold a lot of screenplays for a lot of money. So I guess um, he's done quite well with it. And he's broken down a lot of um, big name movies into that eight act structure and showed... uh, when I took this class from him, showed me how it worked. And I went, oh, okay, well, I can see how he can break that down and see how he thinks it works. So what he's basically doing is taking the three-act structure and expanding it out, you know, making it into easier bite-sized pieces for people. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, and I think you just touched on it, he's not violating three-act structure. He's sort of fine-tuning some things within it. Yeah, that's fine with me. One last thing about scripts and that sort of thing. Explain the difference between an antagonist and an adversary. Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm surprised you didn't ask Stephen this because I learned this from Stephen. And I have had arguments with people about this uh, very thing, people who teach screenwriting. I learned very early on from Stephen that the antagonist is a foil for the protagonist, meaning the protagonist, in very simple terms, is the person through whom we're going to take the ride of the story. We're going to go through the story With the protagonist, they have a want, they have a need, they have a flaw or something that they need to overcome through going through everything that they're going to go through in the course of this story to get what they want. The antagonist is there to remind us in every interaction with the protagonist of what that protagonist is lacking or what they need. So say the protagonist doesn't believe in themselves. That's their basic flaw. They just don't believe in themselves. Well, the antagonist would be someone who believes in themselves. And every time we see them interact with the protagonist, we see how much they believe in themselves. And it it shows us how the protagonist does not believe in themselves. And this is the cause of their problems and why they're not able to move past all of the 
the roadblocks in the way. The adversary, and we don't necessarily have to have an adversary in every story, but the adversary is the guy who's throwing up the roadblocks. Sometimes the adversary is the protagonist. They throw up their own roadblocks in their own way. Right. But the adversary is the is the bad guy in in the action films, the the evil guy who throws, you know, throws the bad things in the way of the protagonist who's the evildoer, the one who's, you know, the snidely whiplash, the, <laughs> that guy who's going to be putting up all the roadblocks who's, you know, who's basically got evil intentions towards the protagonist. That would be the adversary. And that would be the difference between the antagonist and the adversary because the ad- antagonist doesn't necessarily have any bad intentions towards the protagonist. Now, as I did to Stephen and as I'm going to do to all of my writer guests, I want to put my writers on the hot seat by challenging them on grammar or use of cliche phrases, etc. So, is this sentence grammatically correct? Here we go. It's time for Kathy and I to finish this interview. No. And why is that? Because it should be. It's time for Kathy and me to finish this interview. Oh, fantastic. What about me and Kathy had a great interview? Me and Kathy? No. No. Not correct. And that is supposed to be? Kathy and I had a great interview. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, <laughs> you passed 100 <laughs> Well, you know, right. some oh, are, some of these people on TV and some of our advertisers on the radio actually say these things. They do. So I, it's really annoying. It's like, what? <laughs> I, I don't want to seem obnoxious. It's just, it really, that kind of thing bothers me with professional writers do this all the time. And I think, my gosh, that's pretty foundational, pretty fundamental, but there it is. But you pass the test. So. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> but there you go. So any advice, any wisdom you'd like to share for others out there when it comes first to acting? Anything you want to just last minute sum up? You know, my advice is going to be to anyone pursuing a creative career, and that is go for it. Follow your dreams. I've been on this earth long enough to know that life is going to pass you by pretty darn quickly and you're going to look back and go where did the time go and what have I been doing with my life so don't waste another minute if you're not doing what you want to be doing go out and do it even if it means you have to wake up early in the morning or forego watching your favorite show on TV at night so that you can sit at that computer and write something or you can take an acting class or whatever it is, do something that you always wanted to do. Do it now. Don't wait. Live your dream. Do what you want to do because that's what life is all about is living your dreams. Do it. Excellent. I was going to ask you also about any advice for aspiring writers, but your answer actually covered both. So that was fantastic. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being willing to come on the program. And you've been an excellent guest. And thank you very much. You're welcome.
All right. Now, one of the signatures of this podcast is that of allowing our guests to choose the closing music for their episodes. So what would you like us to play out with? Uh, I just ended up with a preposition, excuse me, but what would you like to play? <laughs> That's bad grammatically. I know. But I'm going to let you slide with that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to have you play the closing title music from my film, Worth. It is uh, composed by David Raiklin, who does a lot of the music for my projects. Very good composer, very creative. And the violin parts are all played by Sid Page, who is, uh, like I said, he's retired now, but he uh, was one of the top studio violinists for all of the major motion pictures in the business and one of the concert masters he has played on so many movies and tv shows um i can't even begin to name them all but uh, i would say october sky citizen ruth legally blonde are just a few it's a nice piece of music that sums up the film and me i think thank you so much again greatly appreciate you coming on to the program and well, thank you. So thanks for listening, everybody. We look forward to joining you again as we look at the art of storytelling. Thanks for listening to Long Stories Short with Kevin Courtright. If you'd like to send Kevin your thoughts, comments, or suggestions, he can be reached at lsswithkc at gmail.com. Once again, that email address is lsswithkc at gmail.com. We also invite you to join our podcast Facebook group where you can share your feedback. Thanks again for listening and, long story short, we look forward to having you join us again next time.